This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is New Books in Geography, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Peter Ekman at UC Berkeley. I'm the host of this channel. Uh, today we're speaking with Sun Young Park, who's written a book entitled Ideals of the Body, Architecture, Urbanism, and Hygiene in Post-Revolutionary Paris. Now, this book was published just last year, 2018, with the University of Pittsburgh Press. It appears in a series called Culture, Politics, and the Built Environment. There are about 10 books or so in that series. Um, and Sun Young comes to us today from Northern Virginia. Uh, she is an assistant professor in the Department of History and Art History at George Mason University. Um, and I'm pleased that we have her um, with us today. Sun Young, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for the invitation, Peter. Thank you for making the time. I'm really excited to talk about the book, which is terrific. It's a very fine looking book. Um, uh, it's visually rich. It is archivally deep. It is theoretically motivated. And I think you um, integrate some some wide-ranging theoretical ideas with a, with a very light touch. It's not overweighted by that. Um, it's also a very, very cleverly structured book um, for reasons that we'll get into as the interview progresses. Um, Ideals of the Body is a study that um, rescales and reperiodizes um, urbanism in, in France, in, in Paris, mm -hmm. but, but not only in Paris. I think one of its really um, uh, crucial interventions that will um, uh, make it valuable to, to a wide range of audiences um, is um, how it sort of nominates um, a, a set of ways that we, that we might um, alter the way in which we tell urban history uh, to begin with. And it's mm -hmm. a study that rethinks in uh, what strikes me as a very tangible, material way, um, com complex questions about how bodies and buildings and urban spaces um, interact in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll get into all of that, but before we do, um, Sun Young, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about yourself, um, about your own sort of intellectual uh, uh, biography, your own intellectual development, and then also mm -hmm. a little bit more locally how you came to write this particular book. Sure. Um, yeah, I was uh, thinking earlier that my background is not always the most intriguing to talk about because I haven't taken very many detours in my career. My academic training from undergraduate all the way through the, to the PhD was always focused on architecture, although different aspects of it, you know, whether it was design theory or history, took precedence at various stages. I was an architecture major as an undergrad at Princeton, uh, where the program really places equal importance to the study of history and theory as on design. And in fact, I I think I wasn't really considered to have had enough background in topics like structural analysis when I eventually joined my grad program in architectural design. Uh, and I started the Master of Architecture program at the Harvard Design School after a one-year hiatus post-college. Um, and this is a fairly long program. It's four years for those who enter without a professional architectural degree. 
And I began it with a deep interest in modern architectural and urban history, which had been developed in my undergrad years. But thinking that I eventually wanted to become a practicing architect before thinking about, you know, any other anything else or a PhD. But this plan ended up being somewhat derailed because Harvard has wonderful faculty members and their doctoral programs for architecture and urban planning and art history and history. Uh, and I began taking seminars with some of them, which made me realize that my interests and talents were perhaps not in the field of design, but in research, archival research and history. And I actually locate the beginnings of this book, of my PhD and my academic career in a seminar on 19th century Paris that I took halfway through the MR program. It was co-taught by Antoine Picon and Neil Levine, who later became my dissertation advisors. And my research paper for that class was on the new underground sewer system that was constructed during the French Second Empire between 1852 and 70. Um, and, you know, it's a project that is fascinating for its administrative, political, infrastructural um, elements. But I was particularly drawn to the cultural history surrounding this large scale construction endeavor. So things like, you know, the symbolic dimensions of the underground and a filth in the social imagination of, you know, conceptions of an approach to cleanliness and personal hygiene in the 19th century. Um, you know, spoiler alert, it was not that great. Uh, things like changing thresholds of odor across the 19th century. Uh, so this was a project that introduced me to some, you know, very well-known cultural historians such as Alain Corbin and Georges Figuerello. And their contributions to the history of the body that I came across seemed to me intimately tied to architectural and urban history in ways that could really be, you know, pushed further. And given that 19th century France is generally credited with being the birthplace of modern urbanism as well as modern public health and hygiene, it seemed an ideal place and moment to study the intersecting narratives of urban architecture, medicine, and the body. So this was the research question that I decided to pursue further through the PhD program in architecture and urban planning, which I went into immediately following the MARC degree without practicing. Um, and because of the interdisciplinarity that's promoted in the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, I had the benefit of also studying with professors in the departments of history of art and architecture, history of science and history, and the resulting dissertation, um, which you know take, took me away from the underground eventually to above ground environments, um, to the early 19th century rather than the Second Empire. Um, but that dissertation is what was revised into the book under discussion today. That's great. Um, so one of the major interventions that the book carries out, and this is clear from, from the outset, um, you, you, you get the sense that um, we know a lot about that Second Empire moment. Um, uh, mm -hmm. Urban historians, urban geographers, uh, uh, architectural historians know quite a bit about Houseman and the sort of spectacular gestures, uh, the, the, the broad boulevards and the promenades uh, and, and, and the corresponding acts of uh, uh, destruction of the older city that are carried mm -hmm. out in the late 19th century. Um, that's an open question where we sort of uh, date the founding moment of something called modernity. Um, mm -hmm. we, we will leave that question open, but I think <laughs> one, thing that one thing that your book does is really compellingly make an argument for backing up a little bit and saying, um, you know, re-periodizing this history and focusing um, with renewed vigor on the early 19th century moment, what you call post-revolutionary Paris, but sort of Napoleonic and especially post-Napoleonic um, interventions um, 
on the urban fabric under the banner of what you call a hygienic urbanism. So I guess mm-hmm. the, the, the question is, um, why reperiodize in this way? What does that do for us um, on its own terms, and how does it sort of feed into how we tell um, the ensuing histories as well? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the key question in my book. Um, and it's a moment that, you know, the first part of the 19th century that other than its political history, and we still have so much to explore in terms of its urban and cultural history, um, because the center of gravity in the, na- in the narrative of 19th century Paris has always been that moment of the Second Empire that you were just describing when um, Napoleon III and his urban planner, Georges-Eugène Haussmann, sort of dramatically uh, reconceive of the city in this very kind of wholesale um, way. And so for historians, you know, everything that takes place before is seen as leading up to that moment, and everything that comes afterwards it's seen as sort of a coming to terms with the legacy of housemanization. And it's it's kind of easy to see why there has been a kind of outsized importance in um, the historiography of the Second Empire. And I certainly don't discount the importance of housemen in modern urban history. Um, but I think we've been blinkered somewhat in our conception of urban modernity as a result, because that modern urbanism of the Second Empire was defined by development at the macro scale, you know, by the what you just described, by those grand boulevards and promenades, by, you know, network infrastructure, like those sewer systems I started out by exploring as a grad student, um, homogenized apartment buildings that are creating these uniform facades along those grand boulevards. And because of that, urban historians have tended to look at the earlier era to try and find the direct precedence of those grand gestures. So, for example, they'll be like, oh, here are the earlier examples of boulevards, even if they were smaller and less connected than the Hausmannian ones. Or here are earlier attempts at expanding the sewer system you know, after the cholera epidemic, even if it's at a smaller scale and, and so on. Uh, whereas the argument I make in my book is that if we look elsewhere at different kinds of environments, you know, the semi-public, semi-private spaces that were frequented daily, by city residents, we can find forms and experiences of modernity that may not be as visible or conspicuous, but have actually proved just as enduring. So ideas about hygiene, mobility, productive leisure, technology, urban spectacle, a democratic public sphere, all of these emerged in more localized and gradual ways in gymnasiums and private schools and commercial gardens and sports facilities, which are some of the programs that I um delve into in my book. And, you know, I want to argue that these local, more intimate developments aren't simply superseded by what follows in the Hausmannian era, but that they constitute a parallel narrative um, that continues to inform our contemporary understandings of urban culture, life and form. So I wonder if you could um, take a moment to sort of sketch the the, the broader politics of this moment. Um, You you, you very eloquently make the case for um, Sort of backing up from that Hausmann moment to, to look at the first part of the 19th century. Um, uh, historians of France know, know this story pretty well, following on from the French Revolution, uh, the complications of the 1790s. The years 1804 to 1815 seem crucial here, and you, you're situating these interventions on um, the urban fabric, this hygienic urbanism, within sort of a set of um, anxieties about... Um, uh, potential national decline um, that, mm-hmm. that, that attend the, the politics of this moment. So I wonder if you could sketch out, on the one hand, yes, a politics of um, sort of state-making and statesmen, politics in the, in the traditional sense, but also sort of a broader cultural politics 
um, politics of knowledge that comes to um, inform these these interventions? Yes, um, no, it's a great question, and it's a it's a complicated period, and I think part of the complexities of the political transitions that are happening is the reason that the more cultural urban aspects that I'm interesting interested in engaging has been somewhat overlooked because you know you're talking about you know rise of Napoleon at the end of the French Revolution to the fall of his the empire that he set up in 1815. There's a restoration of the Bourbon monarchy um, in 1815, and then it collapses with the 1830 revolution when a constitutional monarchy is put in place. And then that constitutional monarchy eventually comes into a crisis and falls apart with another revolution in 1848, leading to another effort at um, a Republican moment in France. So there's a lot of political turmoil that I can, you know, only sort of sketch out briefly at the moment. Um, but these are the cultural anxieties that you were just mentioning do very much come out of this kind of political turbulence. So this is not only the time when all of the kind of you know administrative and political structures are in constant upheaval, but you know the you know there's a huge demographic boom in the city. You know urbanization is in full force, so the um, population of the capital increases from about half a million to over a million in between 1800 and 1815. Um, and there are you know epidemics that accompany this growth, cholera um, approaches Europe for the first time in 1832. So this is, there are a lot of things happening. It's the moment that's marked by the birth of the hygiene movement, a kind of institutionalization of public health that happens. There are early large-scale infrastructural projects that um, urban historians have perhaps studied more um, because of its links to the later Hausmann era. And all of these things are happening alongside, um, you know, as you just described, a kind of crisis of about national decline, especially following the collapse of the first Napoleonic Empire. Um, and it's this uh, particular narrative about decline, how France is sort of losing its hegemony in Europe and the fact that they've just, you know, lost, had suffered a series of military defeats and are starting to worry about the health of, you know, the French soldier versus, you know, European um, colleagues that are that are instigating a series of theories in medicine and pedagogy and, you know, military training and practice about how to kind of rehabilitate the French body. And that's basically the starting point of my book about how this moment of political and social and cultural anxiety engenders a series of discourses about reforming the French citizen that end up getting um, implemented, actualized in a series of architectural environments. Great. Yeah. So there's this sense, as, as I read it anyhow, that um, mm-hmm. by um, rehabilitating or uh, reanimating um, whatever term you prefer, the individual body, um, yeah. there is some linkage. There's a presumption that, that will scale up to vitalize, revitalize the social body or the body politic. Um, yes. There are a lot of different ways, I suppose, that one could theorize that linkage and I suppose the different actors and institutions and visionaries that you get into in the empirical chapters uh, present us with a whole whole range of ways of doing so but that seems like the overarching um, sort of wager here um, mm-hmm. yeah and then yes exactly how you talk about sort of scaling up from the body up to the city that there was I was interested in kind of approaching the history of urban architecture in the city from basically the inside out from the bodies that are supposed to be being rehabilitated inside up to the urban environments in which they will then sort of, you know, exercise their powers and skills. Great. 
Um, so I suppose we can get into the central chapters of the, the, the book. There, there are five chapters, and each one of these, um, I think very cleverly, very memorably, is organized around, um, you know, not one sort of field or abstract discourse of either health or uh, uh, citizenhood or, or nationhood, but rather around five different figures, five different bodily ideals. Um, yeah. Uh, as as you phrase them, the soldier in chapter one, the schoolboy, the demoiselle, uh, a specifically uh, feminine ideal here, the lion, and then the sportsman in the uh, the fifth chapter. And um, I think the the structure and the organization of the of of the book, the form of the book, ends up being actually crucial to your argument. Um, and I wonder if you could reflect on that somewhat. Um, you. Um, invoke an early 19th century um, uh, literary genre that I guess is prevalent in France at this time called the phys- <laughs> physiologie. Uh, mm-hmm. And you claim that as sort of the inspiration underlying how you've structured the book. I wonder if you could speak to what that genre is and how, in a sense, you have adapted and extended it here. Yes, absolutely. So um, the idea came to me early in the research phases of this book when I, I still wasn't sure what kinds of environments I would be studying, but I was trying to gain more familiarity with, you know, primary sources, early 19th century French literature, what people are writing about, the kinds of discourses that are at play. Um, and I was reading these, you know, number of texts from the era that formed part of this genre called physiology that was very popular in the 1830s and 40s. Um, and these were, there's a whole, you know, range of them. And they were usually edited volumes that comprised essay contributions by sometimes very well-known writers like Victor Hugo and, you know, Balzac and Gautier. And these would, you know, each chapter would typically describe a recognizable social type. So the ones that figure in my book, like the soldier, the schoolboy, the demoiselle, but, you know, many more besides from the doctor to the tourist to the various street vendors, etc. And a key idea behind these books is, I guess, what um, another historian has called a kind of um, social legibility, that there was an idea that what one does and where and how one lives can be deciphered from one's physical appearance and character. And there's an act- there's actually an interesting proto-Foucauldian space-shaped subjectivity idea behind this 19th century genre. And given my interest in exploring the relationship between bodies and their environments, it struck me as a productive way to organize my own project. So my book emulates this physiology genre and structure, um, not to make the argument that certain spaces directly shaped social figures in specific ways, but rather to investigate how that relationship between space and subjectivity was imagined, theorized, and then eventually put into practice. There's also a temporal or chronological dimension to that organization here because ideas about health and hygiene and national renewal, they filtered gradually through the various social categories. Ideas were first applied to the soldier, the nation's first line of defense, the ones that were seen to be kind of, you know, weak and and failing the nation and having, you know, lost at Waterloo, for example. And those ideas would then get applied to schoolboys as, you know, the nation's future soldiers. And from there to young girls, seen as the future mothers of those soldiers. And so the organization of chapters allowed me to trace that diffusion of ideas, architecture, and practices. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That's great. And I think you're, you're, you're right. I mean, it's the rationale of the book that the, this is not just sort of an inventory of types of people. That, that's part mm-hmm. of it, but they're always embedded in very specific settings and spaces. Yeah. And th- again, that, that, that linkage between bodies and spaces, body, bodies, buildings, and the city, as, as you say at one point, um, mm-hmm. uh, towards the end of the introduction. That is sort of an open, um, theoretical question, conceptual question, but also this, um, sort of multi-form, uh, target of these hygienic interventions. Um, yes. So the soldier, um, that, that chapter is about the military gymnasium specifically. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the question of the, uh, of schooling, it's really about the school as a space, um, and the, uh, the associated barracks as a space as well. Um, right. The chapter's going on from there about these spaces of, uh, 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 really gendered feminine education, the leisure gardens where specifically, again, gendered feminine forms of recreation are being encouraged. And then a whole variety of, of, of spaces in which these new forms of urban recreation in the chapter, uh, in, in, in the fifth chapter, um, are being arranged and encouraged and, and designed for. And you render each one of these as in some ways private, in some ways public, maybe mm-hmm. something else. You use the term of a threshold uh, mm-hmm. between the public and the private. And I wonder if you could sort of specify um, what you mean by that. Yeah, it was um, a word that I kept using, I guess, sort of metaphorically. And then one of the reviewers for my book manuscript was saying, well, there's, you know, a literal meaning to what threshold is. It's the boundary of crossing to enter a building. But there's also a more figurative way to think about it as a kind of frontier, right? It's, you know, I describe it in my book as a beginning of a state or action. And I think all of these books, they have, you know, you can think of them like, for example, a school environment, a private school environment is is defined. It has defined architectural limits. And especially in the case of, for example, girls schools, they're meant to be, you know, very kind of secure boundaries. But I also think of them in the figurative sense as social thresholds of places where emerging ideas about the gendered body, about the healthy body, about the bourgeois body are being sort of constructed through the way different kinds of programs and practices were being implemented in these spaces. Um, So, yeah, all of these spaces I think of as somewhat as having been ignored in the larger narrative housemanization because they're not obviously in the public sphere, but that they are actually semi-public in the way they're kind of schooling their um, the subjects within for their larger social role, whether it is as soldiers, whether it is as future citizens and leaders, or as you know future mothers as you know taking on a kind of social role. I mean, I like the way you. I like the way you summarized my book for me just now because that was very nicely done. Mm. Um, and I think it's, you know, one thing I was thinking of when the way you're describing it is this kind of, right, starting from the individual body and kind of scaling up, right? Beginning with the subjects that were intended to be housed in these environments and then broadening out to the built construct, eventually the urban context. Um, and there's something about this that I was thinking about earlier that perhaps it's, it's also somewhat more, I think, reflective of the way the design process worked in many of these spaces, because 
a lot of the facades, the elevations of the places that I look at, especially in the early chapters, are often not remarkable. Mm-hmm. You know, most of them don't exist anymore. But if you pass them on the streets in Paris, you wouldn't think anything about them because they're incredibly plain and muted. And what's really interesting is all the things that are actually happening inside. And I was thinking, you know, thinking back on my own design education, that that is actually the way we approach the design process. We start with a subject, the user, and then the programs that are necessary for whatever the building is meant to house. And then you think about distribution, circulation, and you kind of, you know, evolve out like in layers from that process. And I have, you know, I can think of countless studio projects in my design education where I never even got to the facade because the semester was not long enough for me Mm. to get there. And I think that my book sort of, I guess, emulates that structure, whereas a lot of architectural history often you approach it from the other way, right? You look at what is, where's the building situated and where does it look, what does it look like? And then you kind of make your way in. And I think sort of reversing that process makes sense for a book that's, you know, more about local changes and renovations than grand overhauls. And I think taking this process also allowed me to kind of place unexpected developments next to each other, that if we start thinking about the resident, the the subject, and their mobility, we can, you know, for example, in the second chapter on schoolboys, place programs like a private boarding house, a state-operated school, the public gardens and promenades and swimming facilities where they were taken that were outside the school environment, you know, the military gymnasium they were also taken to for training, that all of these different programs suddenly become situated on the same map. And it's doing that allowed me to kind of see similar ideas resonating across various and disparate programs that I try to chart across each chapter. I think that's very well said. And I think the, the, the question of mobility is actually crucial here. All of these bodies that are being acted upon mm-hmm. um, and cultivated, they're not entirely passive bodies. Um, these mm-hmm. are meant to vitalize or animate or activate them in all these prescribed ways. And so, um, I mean, that comes, that comes through in each chapter, I think, and it comes through mm-hmm. in the images as, as well. Um, I, I don't think we need to sort of, um, parcel out the question of, of the, of, of the visuals as really its own topic here. I think it will braid itself together with the empirical chapters as, mm-hmm. we, as we delve in. But I, I would just say generally that the, um, the, the visual materials that you, um, have, have included and that so inform the argument really do transmit this um, this sense of movement and this sense of sort of diagramming and prescribing certain kinds of uh, movement. Um, we can we can delve into whichever of those central chapters, I guess, um, you would find uh, most rewarding to do or uh, most mm-hmm. surprising in, in, in terms of your findings. Um, I really like the way the, 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 the imagery, these sort of didactic diagrams and the argument come together in the chapter on the soldier, for instance, Mm-hmm. Um, and conversely, in the leisure garden as well, these spaces at the edge edge of the city. But mm-hmm. um, I would leave it to you to um, um, maybe start with one of these central chapters and show how um, how these notions and how these interventions um, uh, come together. How this one uh, how how one particular ideal of the body um, is being advanced. Yeah, um, I might I might start with one of the chapters you did not mention, okay. which I hope doesn't offend you. By all means, um, and kind of link it to actually the Leisure Gardens chapter. Sure. Um, so those the middle chapter, the third chapter, is on the demoiselles or young bourgeois ladies that are being raised and educated in Paris. Um, and 
I'll, like, I guess I'll sort of trace the trajectory of that chapter first. It's about um, at a time when, you know, this is the romantic era. There are a lot of sort of ideals of, you know, young women sort of being consumed by melancholy and, you know, um, broken hearts and, you know, all of these kind of like sentiments that educational reformers, doctors at the time are starting to see as problematic because they're saying this kind of romantic ideal we see in art and literature of the time are basically um, promulgating a consumptive ideal, which is not very good considering that we need these women to grow up to be the future mothers of our you know, sons and soldiers. So to capture how these kind of reformers are starting to go about sort of presenting a contrasting or a um, contesting ideal of, of, of healthy femininity. I look at, you know, medical treatises about women and health and kind of the need to you know, like physically educate them and not just in, you know, music or drawing or sewing. And how, also, how alongside those ideas, there are these orthopedic clinics that are starting to be created with for both boys and girls, but with girls seen as the more, you know, at risk population since they are just sitting around, you know, drawing and painting and sewing and whatnot. Um, and so I kind of start with this like medical discourse and medical environments that are being created to craft a more healthy ideal of the female body. And then how those ideas and practices about physical education, about movement, um, about a kind of more productive, um, productive leisure, how that gets uh, actualized in architectural environments through a range, you know, actually hundreds of private schools that are being um, that are being created in the capital at a time when educational administrative frameworks are somewhat in disarray because of the political turbulence that's happening in the background. And so there is, you know, the first part of the narrative is about a kind of it's about rationalization of the social body, right? It's about trying to like create healthier bodies out of this one sort of like overlooked segment of the urban population. Um, but how I eventually sort of bring that narrative to a close in the chapter is looking at, at, you know, the images of these bodies, these girls who are like swinging on trapezes and, you know, like climbing ladders and doing things that look almost military in aspect and thinking about the ideas about this kind of like really strengthened, liberated, um, forceful female body that's being depicted and actually sort of being created through these practices, all, even if the people who are cultivating that discourse really were trying to make these women just stronger mothers and nothing else. And it's that kind of idea of a kind of more liberated, um, publicly facing strong female body that I kind of chart in the later chapters by looking at how these sort of bourgeois women are suddenly not just, you know, staying at home and nursing their sentimental heartbreak or whatnot and, you know, reading novels, but actually going out into leisure gardens and taking part in, um, in you know exercises and games that are very much out in um, out in the out in the public sphere, and how we sort of can actually almost trace uh, an emancipated female part participation in um, in the urban sphere from a discourse that began with simply wanting to create healthier, stronger mothers. It's a great point, and it's one that you really um, underline in the conclusion of the book, that bodies uh, tend not to fit, uh, you know, complacently into the spaces that designers or architects have allotted for them. And mm -hmm. so there's this sort of the, the, the attempted creation of a particular kind of subject, but then that subjectivity or that, that uh, corporeality uh, always, it seems, tends to overflow these 
bounds. And so the, the chapters uh, play off of one another in, um, I think, very generative ways. Um, and in the chapter that you've just um, sort of delved uh, into for us, um, in terms of the, the imagery, of course, we can't uh, mm-hmm. transmit this in the course of the interview exactly, mm-hmm. but um, you, I think, very deftly pair some, some imagery um, uh, in order to compare and contrast the bodily regimens that have been prescribed for soldiers uh, versus these gymnastic exercises for right. um, for, for young women. Um, and um, even for the um, these these feminized feminizing um, uh, exercises, you very often pair um, sort of sketches, uh, depictions of what this looks like with this much more sort of clinical, spare, um, uh, uh, you know, highly analyzed and broken down sort of diagrammatic way of representing every little facet of the movement. Um, mm-hmm. So it comes through in a very rich way. So it's sort of a proto, I don't know, uh, Taylorist understanding of time, time and yeah, on, on, on the American scene in an industrial uh, context. But I, th- I think it works out really well. Yeah, and you were mentioning sort of the range of images, which unfortunately, right in the in the uh, context of a podcast, we can't. Um, really, you know, generate through to the audience. But, uh, you know, for historians of art, architecture, visual culture, geography, images aren't just illustrations, right? But they're part of the evidence we use to make our arguments. And, you know, point I frequently try to make to my grad students in history is that images have to be read and analyzed and interpreted much like textual sources. Um, And so I've in my book, I was really trying to get a range of um, visual artifacts, both high and low. So in this particular chapter, I was just describing about the Demoiselle. Um, I, you know, I looked at oil paintings that were exhibited at the Paris Salon that depicted romantic ideals of feminine beauty. I also looked at illustrations of exercising girls and orthopedic clinics that were included in medical treatises and promotional prospectuses for um, these clinics. And I also looked at the plans of hundreds of new private girls schools being created in the city and then at you know popular prints that were depicting these new spaces for young ladies and also kind of mocking them at times. And so it's um, it was that whole spectrum of high and low that I wanted to kind of include as part of the argumentation. And you know, some of these images have never been reproduced, actually, and many of them are quite delightful. So it was um, it was a relief to have a press that was able to kind of support me in that in that production process. Yeah, I think I think the images are great, and I think I think they do exactly what you say they do. They you are arguing through those images; they're not just sort of exemplary of what's really going on in in, in the text. They're really fully integrated uh, into it. Um, so, in, in these central five chapters, I suppose the the first two are sort of gendered in a masculine way. We've talked about mm-hmm. the the demoiselle and then the Lyon in the um, uh, le- leisure garden setting. The fifth mm-hmm. chapter um, around the ideal of the, uh, the, the the sportsman and sort of urban recreation in a broader sense, you're talking about spaces that are designed with the full spe- spectrum in mind. Um, mm-hmm. um, I wonder if you could speak to that chapter specifically and how it sort of plays off what came before and kind of synthesizes and redirects some of these um, some of these ideas and interventions. Yeah, so I was mentioning earlier how each chapter kind of, there's a kind of chronological um, organization to the way each of these figures come up. And, you know, this ideal of the sportsman, which sounds 
masculine, obviously, at first glance, because the word man is in it. Um, I think it's an interesting one because there's the sportsman as a figure was actually seen to be both either male or female, that the kind of, you know, urban um, sporting figures in these different kinds of environments like equestrian grounds and, you know, swimming facilities um, and sports clubs that, it could be either male or female that, you know, in one of the physiologies that I read, they were the author was describing the sportsman as actually possibly also being a, you know, a female sportsman. Um, and I think this is the fifth chapter, sort of the culmination of all of the different environments that I was studying earlier, because it's um, ideas about, you know, the military gymnasium, ideas about um gymnastics and physical education in school environments, um, swimming, becoming incorporated into the pedagogical program. All of these kind of flower into these more overtly public venues in the city of public gymnasiums where people can actually go to exercise or just to view people exercising of, you know, swimming facilities that become more popular with the middle class um, in the 1830s and the 40s. And I see it as, you know, when we think about public health, the urbanism of public health that's supposed to come to full flower in, you know, the year of Houseman. I see a kind of an, an other network of urban public health being cultivated through these programs, which are, you know, independently run. They are commercial enterprises. They have, you know, a variety of architects or non-architects and builders sort of um, working on their construction. But together, they kind of create this like network of a city that's, you know, mobilized around hygienic activity, about productive leisure, about an urban spectacle that's focused on the healthy and productive and fit body. Um, and it's, I see it as kind of seeing how these more, um, again, more rationalizing, more disciplinary um, discourse about medicine and public health and hygiene, how that actually gets co-opted into uh, into an arena of recreation and leisure and fun for the expanding leisure classes. And kind of you're able to see how sort of the earlier ideas that are more pedagogical sort of come into fruition, into um an arena that was perhaps not intended for it originally. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and yeah, the the, the chapters are uh, subtly chronological. I, I I don't want to give the impression that the uh, maybe in the in the tradition of, of the original physiology, there's just this sort of static inventory mm-hmm. of five types. It's not that. right, right. Um, well, they you, overlap exactly. Um, you invoke the category of romanticism and mm-hmm. uh, sort of the romantic city or romantic urbanism, and um, the, the, the last sort of uh, large question I'd like to pose to you is is about that as as a category. And I, I get mm-hmm. the sense that one of the things that your book is doing is trying to sort of rethink that category, which you admit from the outset is um, difficult to define. <laughs> there have been yeah. generations of disagreement over what precisely that means. Some people use it in a purely pejorative sense. Some people mm-hmm. use romanticism only when describing sort of the affective realm or only mm-hmm. when describing the, uh, you know, artistic production. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder how we should, how we should think differently about what that category means. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, as a historical period, um, in what it consists, um, once we understand that it bears on the practices of urbanism as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's really complex. I mean, I just turned to the portion in my in the introduction of my book where I talk about it. And just to you know give you a quote, um, it's 
romanticism has been described as simultaneously revolutionary and counter-revolutionary, individualistic and communitarian, cosmopolitan and nationalistic, realist and fantastic, retrograde and utopian, democratic and aristocratic, rebellious and melancholic, all of these kinds of opposites coming together. Um, and I centralize this ca- category of the romantic for both historical and theoretical reasons. The period that I study is the romantic era, culturally speaking, um, and concepts from romantic art and literature are part of the intellectual and social and even medical discourses that I engage. So the ideals of the body that I begin with in each chapter are either product or contestations of gendered romantic tropes that are prevalent in the art and literature and culture of the time. So, you know, whether it's the androgynous romantic hero that the soldier figure is trying to contest or the transgressive heroines of George Sand novels in the 1830s that, you know, these women kind of gallivanting around leisure gardens are trying to emulate. It's sort of, it's constantly intermingled in the um, developments that I study. Um, But romanticism is, you know, as that list of attributes that I just read out indicate, it's a particularly protean movement, which made it serve as a useful theoretical framework for this book. And to briefly explain what I mean by protean again, I mean, romanticism and its political strain first emerged after the French Revolution of 1789 as a very conservative, Christian, nostalgic reflection on the past by aristocrats and royalists who are countering the Enlightenment. But then in the early 19th century, it gets taken up by the liberal movement in favor of revolution and ideas of self-emancipation and sort of one of the forces that kind of, you know, is mixed up in the 1830 revolution. So in thinking about all the disparate ideas and manifestations that have been given the label of romantic, um, the French historian Francis Demier has argued that, you know, the only commonality that seems to coexist within all of these kinds of different um, attributes is that they all counter the mainstream of history. It's this um, conception of romanticism as a constantly shifting countercurrent, a kind of modernity forged in adversity, you might call it, um, that seemed like an especially fitting framework for a study of urban modernity that studies these overlapping piecemeal and varied processes in an era of transitions, in an era of kind of continual political upheaval. Um, And in that sense, you know, that understanding of the romantic gets me a little bit away from the more historically rooted uh, cultural manifestations. But sort of on both levels, it seemed to me such a kind of rich topic of the time that um, that came through in these two registers. I think you're right. And you you define the term broadly enough and extend it into enough domains and institutions and uh, discourse, discourses, methods, regimens that we see that, you know, it, it ends up being a highly material, highly tangible set of discourses, ones that, mm-hmm. that matter crucially for the arrangement of spaces, for thinking about the physical dimensions of the body, and not mm-hmm. only, say, you know, interior interior mental or emotional states, right? Right. Um, uh, there is a sort of underlying materialism here that that is um, that, that is perhaps you would claim as, as your method, but it, at the very least is... I think in this moment, motivating these interventions on on health, on biological mm-hmm. life, on 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 space, um, and and everything else going forward. Um, and so I think you know I, I think I think it's a crucial gesture, and it might it it may well 
know, profoundly uh, affect and profoundly shake up sort of how we tell the history of of urbanism more broadly, having tabled the romantic cities um, mm-hmm. or romantic urbanism in this way. Um, I wonder how you might reflect on, um, you know, in, in, in light of this, how we should then tell the history of be it Hausman or be it other 19th and 20th century urbanisms going forward. Mm. And I think, you know, it goes back perhaps to our, our earlier discussions of, you know, refocusing the uh, periodization here, that it has to do, it's, it's a question of scale, right, which um, you pointed out earlier that I think what I'm doing with this look at the Romantic era is giving us a look at the history of modern urbanism that in scale is perhaps not what we typically expect, because what we typically expect is sort of the, you know, bird's eye view, top-down, state-administered kind of urbanism that is much larger. Um, I mean, there's a book by historian Maurizio Gribaudi um, from 2014. It's called Paris Ville Ouvrière that um, I think kind of helped me like think through this a bit further. He In this book, he analyzes working class environments for the same era that I'm looking at. Um, and he looks at, I think he describes it as the micro scale, as looking at a worker's modernity that's being, that's emerging in the dense urban fabric, the kind of social networks that are being cultivated in these largely overlooked neighborhoods, um, many of which get later wiped out by Hausman. Um, and Gribaudi contrasts his findings with what historians typically identify as the bourgeois modernity of the Second Empire Paris, um, which is that larger macro scale view of urban modernity. And I think the aim of my book is to show that a bourgeois modernity at a micro local scale was already at work in early 19th century architecture and urbanism, not where urban historians have typically been looking, but and in these local environments as a series of individual ventures from the ground up rather than imposed from the top down. And I think that's what kind of like shifting our focus to the romantic era gives us. And it allows us to perhaps take another look at that house humanization era and kind of look beyond the the boulevards and the infrastructure and the pipes and the sewers and all that and and look at the spaces that are kind of those those threshold moments that we were discussing earlier that that perhaps we're also not done yet with house humanization and that history it makes a lot of sense yeah it's a it's a rescaling um it's also i don't know arguably sort of a a a a recentering of um, to the extent that each one of these um, sets of interventions is conceiving of its work as scientific, it's mm-hmm. a way of sort of redirecting from what could seem like this just sort of brute, blockish kind of social physics of of, mm-hmm. of Hausmann's era into a much more um, sort of fine grained um, uh, biology, I suppose, uh, yeah. life science of the city. Yeah, and what I like about that, I think, and the way you phrase it, is that it places the onus back on the subjects, not the planners or the state as the initiators of change, sort of that these like local figures, some of whom are making these changes really for their own commercial benefit, are, you know, that they're actually creating their own modernity somehow through these local interventions. Um, you know, the history of urbanism is so often told as a kind of top-down narrative, and the story of Second Empire Paris is perhaps the ur text for this. But I think by kind of shifting our view, by looking from the micro, the local, and the subjects, that we can reframe the history of urbanism as a collective project that's constantly in a state of becoming. It's a, it's a, it's a crucial point, and as you show several times over in this book, these plans, these these designs do not always work out as planned. 
Um, yes. <laughs> probably a, a good sort of covering statement for for, for historians more, for all more, more broadly. For environment, <laughs> yes. Um, well, this is all great. Um, I think you've given us um, a really clear and uh, lively picture of what's what's at stake in this in this book. Um, um, ideals of the body, um, architecture, urbanism, and hygiene in post-revolutionary Paris. Um, with the time that remains, um, I wonder if you'd be able to tell us what you're working on now, um, what your next projects, large or small, um, might be, and uh, maybe you're up to something entirely different now. Yes, um, not entirely different. No, I am actively working on a second project, but it sort of still fits within these intersecting narratives of modern architecture, medicine, and the body that um, directed my first book. So my second project is titled The Architecture of Disability in Modern France, and it'll examine the experience of blind, deaf, and physically disabled subjects across the long 19th century through their architectural and urban frameworks. So the book begins with the creation of the first blind and deaf institutes in world history, which were created in Paris um, during the Enlightenment in the late 18th century. And my plan is to lead the book up to the aftermath of World War One, you know, the crisis provoked by the return of disabled veterans and early efforts and movement toward accessible design. So it's um, thematically, there's a lot that intersects with my first book. And I actually started on this project because one of the environments that I didn't get to include in my first book, um, but which, you know, I'd seen images of and I'd wanted to include at some point is these blind and deaf schools where actually some of the military gymnasiarchs who are trained in these military gymnasiums actually started implementing um physical education classes and um, gymnasium environments in these schools. Um, so it ended up becoming the seed of this new project. And I see it, you know, similarly as with the first book, a kind of investigation of about citizenship and the public sphere in the end, um, that the disabled subject became a kind of test case, shall we say, for thinking about the vexed question of who is a citizen um, at a time when France is making this very turbulent transition from monarchism to republicanism. Uh, so I'm in the very early stages of it, sort of uh, focusing my attentions right now on the blind and deaf schools that are founded and then rebuilt completely in the early 19th century. But that is the direction it's moving in. That sounds great. I mean, it's in, in, in one way a sort of topical narrowing, but uh, a historical broadening and a, yeah. a whole set of conceptual uh, openings here that seem to flow organically, if you wish, from, from, from the current book project, but are, are different in kind. Um, I think it sounds great. Um, thank you for taking the time today to tell us about, um, your first book. Um, it's been nice talking with you. Um, once again, it was is, such a pleasure, Peter. Thank you for your time. I, I, thank you for taking the time. Um, this is New Books in Geography. Um, we've been speaking with Sun Young Park of George Mason University. The book is Ideals of the Body, Architecture, Urbanism, and Hygiene in Post-Revolutionary Paris. They're on New Books and Geography on the New Books Network. Thanks. <laughs>